We have the privilege today of getting to hear uh, someone preach God's word to us who is not only a friend of this ministry, uh, but has become a close personal friend of mine, Pastor Dave Hintz, who, uh, who has two children who actually attend our church. Many of us have enjoyed getting to know uh, Julia over the last two years, and Nathan is a freshman at KU and has been attending our church this fall as well. Uh, Pastor Dave uh, has more experience in the ministry than just where he's currently at in Emporia. He served for a few years as a missionary in Hungary. He spent time ministering in California, which is also a mission field, um, different culture than ours out there. Um, and in 2007, he accepted the call to serve as the senior pastor at Flint Hills Bible Church in Emporia, Kansas. Many of you men have gotten a chance to go with us as we go uh, once a year to the men's conference that they've been hosting for over a decade now, the Iron Men Summit. And a little plug, if you're not signed up for that, it fills up very fast. Registration's open, so you should sign up to go with us. Uh, we're always encouraged by the clear biblical teaching, the rich fellowship, and we're thankful to get to hear some of that clear teaching this morning. So I'm going to pray and then ask Pastor Dave if you would come and open God's word to us. Lord, our souls have already been stirred and fed as we've uh, heard the reading of your word and we've sung your praises this morning. I pray that you would now fix our attention uh, on you. And as we listen to the preaching of your word, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. That you would open our hearts to receive all that uh, you would have for us this morning. Pray that your spirit would uh, work through Pastor Dave, guide his words, and may our hearts be brought to a deeper faith and a greater love for Christ and a stronger sense of that assurance that we sang of this morning. We love you and we thank you for the privileges to be here and we ask that you be glorified as we continue our worship now. Amen. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill. This is uh, my second favorite church. So I, uh, you know, I, we consider you a sister church, and he's my brother pastor. So when we talk about a family reunion, I'm kind of from the, the Flint Hills Bible Church clan, right, visiting the family up here. And it's family reunion as well, where I get to see my, my children. So I, I kind of beg JD the chance to preach every year so that I can see him and kind of see the world that they're all in. And um, yeah, and, and, and it's been great. And you guys have been very, very good to uh, my children. They love this church. They feel like I have a spiritual home away from home. And I, I recommend KU for a lot of reasons. I am an alum. But primarily because of this church. And if you have a good church family, a good church community, and sane adults in your life, it doesn't matter the insanity you have on campus, right? So it was wonderful. Well, let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Well, Father, I do thank you so much for Redemption Hill, and I thank you for Pastor J.D. and the leaders here. Uh, Father, what a precious body and what a precious gift to Emporia, that you have a group of men and women who gather every Sunday to hear your word proclaimed excellently and well. I pray that this will be a message that will just encourage the hearts of people here, that they will see you as the, the gentle sovereign who cares and loves for them, and cares for them and loves them. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, the year was 1996, and I just graduated from the University of Can Kansas, right? Home of the 5-1 Kansas Jayhawks. You know, I get hissed at when I do that at my church. Not here, right? It's good to be in the promised land. But I was, uh, I was getting ready to, to embark on the next phase of my life, which, as J.D. mentioned, was to be a missionary 
in Hungary. And, and this was a big step for me because when I went to KU, I had every intention of graduating and going to law school and living a comfortable upper middle class life. But the Lord gripped my heart. He changed me. He changed my priorities. And next thing you know, the very thing I never wanted to be, I was becoming a missionary. Now, there were some obstacles to this. Namely, I had to raise $25,000. Now, I did a little inflation calculator. That's $50,000 in today's money I had to raise. And there were some obstacles. For one, I did not grow up in a Christian family. I didn't have a home church to appeal to. I was pretty much on my own. Secondly, my parents just relocated to Boise, Idaho, so I had to find a new church and a new home. And so I went to Boise, Idaho, needing to raise $50,000 in today's money, and I had six names given to me by somebody. So I got integrated into a, a new church, and they agreed to allow me to raise support in that church, and so I went to work. And there were times when I'd sit in my dad's office, and I would vow to myself, I will not leave this office until I have made one support appointment. And I'd go through the church directory and systematically call people. And I actually, one night I did 30 phone calls before I got my one appointment, then I called it a day. Now, this was over the summer. With about a month left, I only had about 40% of my support raised. And so it was getting somewhat desperate. So I decided I was going to have a support party. I'm not sure if you've ever been to one of these. You have your friends, invite their friends, you present the ministry, hopefully you generate new contacts. And so I cleaned the house, had a whole spread made up. And then when the big night came, I had a few friends show up and that's it. And I remember going to bed that night just deeply discouraged and having a conversation with God that went something like this. It's like, Lord, you know, you called me to be a missionary. And that was like this huge step for me, right? You wanted me to surrender my life, to follow you wherever you would lead me. I thought you were leading me to, to hungry, leading me into full-time ministry. Uh, you know, I, I heard this whole thing that where God guides, he provides. What's going on? I was discouraged. Now, have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been discouraged? I mean, it might be that you sense a, a, a call to get married. I think the Lord has destined me to have a, a relationship. I feel called to be married, but there's a problem. No one else seems to feel the same call to be married to you. Or, or perhaps you, you have a call to want to provide for your family, and you think this might be the job that will get me there, but they don't return the phone call. Perhaps you are dealing with some sort of chronic illness and you hear somewhere that if you do this or try this homeopathic remedy or go to this doctor in this city, this, this is going to solve it for you, but then it doesn't happen. Or it could just be the trials of life just gradually wear you down and you are uh, discouraged. Now, if you have been discouraged, are discouraged, or know someone who is discouraged, Raise your hand, right? For those of you who didn't raise your hand, good for you, right? You may enjoy it now, okay? But for the rest of us, I want to direct our, our attention to kind of an unlikely encouragement for the discouraged, and that is the prophet of Elijah. 
Now, when you look at Elijah, right, he's in the hall of fame of prophets. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? The disciples are awakened by a glorified Jesus. And, and who's with them? Moses and Elijah. Okay, this guy was a superstar prophet who, who did all kinds of amazing miracles, which we'll talk about in, in, in a little bit. He was as bold as a lion. And yet we learn from James 5.17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he has one of the most famous episodes of discouragement that we see in Scripture. In fact, if you haven't already, uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And I have a four-point outline for you, for you note-takers, okay? Okay, I worked hard on this outline, so I want you to write it down. The first point is Elijah's fright, one through three. Elijah's fright. Followed by Elijah's spite, verse four. Followed by Elijah's plight, five through eight. And then get this, you'll like this one. And then how God made things right, 9 through 18. Isn't that good, right? It all rhymes, right? Elijah's fright, Elijah's spite, Elijah's plight, and how God made things right. And all of this is to really learn from, from Elijah, who found comfort in the midst of his discouragement by being drawn to the subtle, sovereign ways of God. Now, in the original Hebrew canon, First and Second Kings was not divided. It is one book, possibly penned by some anonymous Jew in exile. We're not quite sure who wrote the book. But it is a book about the downfall of Israel. At the beginning, right, you, you see David, the great king of Israel, who gives way to his son Solomon, who literally experiences and brings Israel the golden age, the high point of their kingdom. But... Solomon's heart was turned away by many foreign wives, and, and his son, Rehoboam, makes some idiotic and stupid decisions, and the northern tribes are peeled away by Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam, who is a ruler of this northern kingdom of Israel, realized that he was at a distinct disadvantage compared to the southern tribes. The temple was not in his vicinity. So he decides to erect two separate cities with two separate altars where people could go ahead and worship the God of Israel in the form of an animal instead of making the trip down and pledging allegiance possibly to Jerusalem and the temple. In 1 Kings 16.31-32, we see one of his descendants, Ahab, takes this worship of idols to the next level. In 16.31-32, And if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, this is King Ahab, his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Now, literally meaning Lord Master, Baal was the chief of the Canaanite gods. He was the sky god. 
He oversaw the rain and reproductivity. In fact, if you were to look at ancient Near Eastern art, he was often represented as a mating bull. And the Jews, or whoever his inheritance would be, would worship their god, Baal, through sensual means. Baal, in their mind, was the key to prosperity. If it didn't rain, you don't seed the clouds. You go to the temple of Baal, find a prostitute, and that will bring the rain. And this was despicable to God. And so, what God does is he sends Elijah, the Tishbite, to Israel before it's too late. He seeks to rescue a nation that is rapidly apostatizing. And so remember how how Baal was the, the sky god? Elijah makes an appointment with Ahab, and he tells Ahab, there will be no rain for three years until I call the skies to open again. Your sky god will be powerless. Yahweh is cursing this land and cursing the sky so that you will not experiencing the healing, refreshing rains. All the while, God was sustaining Elijah through miraculous means. He was ministered to by, by ravens who fed him in the wilderness. Remember when uh, he visited a, a, a widow with her son and he asked for some bread and, and she was convinced there was nothing to be had, but the Lord kept on multiplying the bread and the, the flour and the oil so that he can continue to consume it. When, when her son passed away, she called Elijah and Elijah resurrected him from the dead. And then you see the greatest miracle. This was my favorite Bible story with my children. We reenacted this many times. It was the duel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? God says to Elijah, go to Ahab, and he makes an appearance. He says, get your prophets, go to Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a duel. Both of us will chop some wood, build an altar, slaughter an animal, put it on the wood, and we're going to see which God hears and attends to our prayers. And so you have 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and they go ahead and slaughter the bull, put it on the wood pile, and they call, Baal, answer us! And Baal doesn't seem to answer. And so they start immolating themselves, right? Maybe if we whip ourselves, cut ourselves, beat ourselves, maybe then Baal will answer them. And the whole time, Elijah's just talking trash. I don't think Baal can hear you. Maybe he's relieving himself. Now, mothers, that's in the Bible, okay? No judging me. That's in the Bible. He literally says that. So he's talking trash the whole time. And when it's very clear that Baal's not answering, he's like, all right, here we go. He goes to his altar. He digs a trench around it. And he fills this trench with water. And then God says, fill up a jar of water. He does. Pour it on the altar. He does once, twice, three times. There is a soggy sacrifice. And you can just imagine like the hush, right, all around him. And, and then he prays to God. 1 Kings 16, 36 through 37. This is what Elijah says. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And at that point in time, this beam from heaven, I just imagined this three-foot wide beam of fire just and it's gone. And all of a sudden, the stunned crowd realizes what just happens, and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah says, rise up, my brethren. Let's kill some priests. And they all descend upon the prophets of Asherah, the prophets of Baal, slaughter them all. But then there's more. He bows down to the ground. He prays for rain, and the curse on the land is lifted as this cloud grows and churns and produces a drought-breaking rain. But then something happens that turns Elijah dark. He wanted a revival, but it doesn't happen. And this is where we see Elijah's fright in verses 1 through 3. And we're going to note a couple of things. One, we're going to note that his discouragement was fueled by unmet expectations. Okay? Elijah's discouragement is fueled by unmet expectations. Remember his prayer. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. What does he want? He doesn't necessarily want rain. He wants revival. He wants this apostate people to turn from their sins and follow the living God. And he is convinced that this is going to happen, but then something turns in verse 1 of chapter 19. Look closely. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, what's wrong with that statement? Was it Elijah who did all these things? See, this is a classic case of media bias, right? It wasn't Elijah who did these things. It was the Lord who did all of these things. And so Ahab is not getting it. He doesn't walk away chanting the Lord, he is God. He's like, there's this renegade prophet who's killing all of the priests and tattling on Elijah to his wife Jezebel. Now imagine that Redemption Hill decided to sponsor an outreach to the good people of Lawrence. You guys rent the lead center. And then you arrange for a debate on the existence of God between one, Richard Dawkins. You know, you know who Richard Dawkins is, right? The God delusion. Uh, he, he's a guy who mocks Christians frequently, okay? Between him, and you can, you can pick your favorite apologist. If I had to pick one man on earth to debate Richard Dawkins, I'm with Al Mohler, okay? And so you talk to your friends, you talk to your family. The whole lead center is packed. And Richard Dawkins and Al Mohler go mano a mano, and Al Mohler is crushing Richard Dawkins, heading him off at every turn. His command of science, philosophy, history, 
is just clearly frustrating Richard Dawkins so much that Richard Dawkins finally just stands up and says, listen, if the God who you believe in is real, I call on him right now to strike me dead. All of a sudden, there's an earthquake in Lawrence, Kansas. And the lead center roof just cracks open. And at this point in time, there is this light coming down that materializes into the form of what you know is an angel. He looks at Al Mohler and says, you are right. Then he looks at Richard Dawkins and says, as you wish. And all of a sudden, Richard Dawkins just burst into flames. Now, at the end of that outreach, you know what you're going to do? Pastor J.D., we need to build a bigger church. There is revival afoot, right? Greatest outreach of all time. But then word gets around that Redemption Hill Church and now Moeller murdered Richard Dawkins. And you're like, what? Right? There is some disillusionment there. Elijah had the full expectation that it's like, what more would you all want? You saw the hand of the Lord among you, and that wasn't enough to turn the heart of the king. And really, as the king goes, so does the rest of the nation. And so he is discouraged. He's discouraged because things did not turn out as he, as he thought they would. Have you guys ever had that... Um, experience of just crushed hopes you're praying for that wayward son and his wife leaves him and you think this is it this is what's going to get him or perhaps you're in a difficult marriage and somebody gives you a, a copy of fireproof and you think this will fix our marriage or perhaps you have this belief that if we just had this right kind of treatment, this would fix my health problems. Or, this is the election when we get everything we want. Right? There, there is a sense where often we try to place our faith in sight, right? In, in what we can, what we can see. We can place our, fi our flight in, or I'm sorry, our, our faith in and what we perceive to be how the Lord is working. And we're blind to the invisible hand of God, that there might be something else afoot. Our expectations are not necessarily in line with God's plan, are they? And so you see, by Elijah having this expectation of revival, when that wasn't met, he didn't quite know what to do. It, it was very unsettling for him. He thought the Lord was taking him this way, but then there seems to be a pivot. And what you start to see is that Elijah is going through a period of doubt. And this is Elijah's fear, right? He is starting to, to fear the repercussions of a certain Jezebel. Look at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and arose and ran for his life 
and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So here is a man who was unbowed by so many people in his life. But when Jezebel turns on him, all of a sudden he is afraid. Do you guys know much about Jezebel? Do we have any, anybody pregnant in here? Okay. If you have a daughter, scratch Jezebel off of the baby name list, okay? That's your application for this sermon. She was the Phoenician wife of Ahab. She was every bit as devoted to Baal as, as Elijah was to Yahweh. She signed the execution order to have all the prophets of Yahweh put to death. My favorite story about her that I think really kind of captures her is later on when, when Ahab is all discouraged because he saw this really nice vineyard and he wanted it as his garden. And, but there was a problem. It was owned by this guy named Naboth who wouldn't sell it to Ahab because it belonged to his family. And, and just imagine with me the conversation that they must have had. He comes in all crestfallen and and Jezebel says, what's the matter, baby? Well, <laughs> I saw this really nice vineyard that I wanted to buy. And this guy named Naboth wouldn't give it to me and wouldn't sell it to me because it belonged to his family. Oh, come to mama, Ahab, baby. Jezebel's going to make everything all right. And she does by hiring two worthless men to accuse this righteous man and have him put to death. In Disney terms... Jezebel would be two parts queen of hearts, a slice of the wicked stepmother, and one cup of Cruella de Vil and a dash of Ursula the Sea Witch. I mean, she is the villainous of villainesses. Now, she doesn't kill Elijah on the spot. I'm not quite sure why, but she does say, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow morning. So instead of trusting God, right? He flees for his life. He is genuinely afraid of this woman, and he genuinely does not believe that the Lord is going to protect him from her. He doesn't stay, prophesy, and fight. He flees into the desert. And this is where he has like this dark night of the soul where he's really wondering, is Yahweh really Yahweh? Right? Fear is a natural complement of, of doubt, isn't it? When you're ruled by fear... Fear of circumstances, fear of people, fear of the future, you're not ruled by faith. When you're not ruled by faith, you're given towards doubt. And doubt has one ultimate outcome, despair. You never find a happy doubter, do you? And this leads us to Elijah's spite. His hopelessness leads to despondency. In verse 4, we find him weary, and, and this is what we read. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. I am no better than my father's. I want to die. I want to die. If this is a reward for being a prophet, take me now. I'm no better than my father's. Now, if this were Moses, you would have a, a different response. Do you remember when Moses went up to Mount Sinai 
and he receives the tablets, the covenant of the Lord, and he comes back down. And what does he find? God's chosen people committing ghastly acts of idolatry. He rebukes them. He returns to God, and God says, you know what, Moses? I'm sick of them. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start over with you. What do you think? What did Moses do? Yeah, go ahead. They drive me crazy. He's like, Lord, you know what? If you do that, people will accuse you of unrighteousness. Moses intercedes for his people, and through the intercession of Moses, those people are saved. Now, in this case, Elijah doesn't want to intercede for his people. He wants to be dead so that they will no longer be interceded for. He basically says, Lord, strike my life and send them to hell. I'm done with them. I'm turning in my prophet badge. And when he says that he's no better than his fathers, he's basically saying, you know what? I've done everything. They've done everything. They're still just an apostate, hopeless people. He's lost a lot of perspective, hasn't he? I mean, this is a man who saw the Lord ignite a soggy sacrifice. He was there when God raised that young man from the dead. He was there when God kept on multiplying the widow's food supply. He was fed by ravens and birds. But he chose not to think about all those things. Instead, he, he meditates on truths like what we find in 1910. I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, only I, am left, and they seek to take my life away. Now, is that true? Is he the only one left? Well, when you go back further into the context, he is approached by a man named Obadiah, and we read in 18.3, And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Right? There's one who fears the Lord. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water. Right? Obadiah feared the Lord, and he hid a hundred prophets who also feared the Lord. And Obadiah told, Ahab, told Elijah about this right? He wasn't the only one left. And yet, in his despondency, he was focusing on things that made him sad. Do you guys ever do this? I mean, sometimes when you get sad, you want to listen to sad songs, right? There's a certain comfort that comes with that. I remember as a kid, when I felt like my family was ignoring me, I'd clear out my toy box I would hide in my toy box, and then I would say loudly, nobody loves me. And when nobody paid attention to me, I would say even louder, nobody loves me. And what did I want? Oh, we love you, Dave. Get out of the toy box. We'll go ahead and play whatever game you want, right? That's what I wanted. You know, a lot of times when people are sad and despondent, they turn to self-pity, and self-pity feels pretty good. And, and there is a tendency to exaggerate your circumstances so you feel justified in your self-pity. And, and you know you're doing this when you add the word always or never to whatever negative circumstances your way. Nobody wants to date me. I never get a job. It always goes wrongly for me, right? You make it absolute 
pull into self-pity and despondency. But God was not content to leave Elijah there. And that's where we see Elijah's plight, his first steps towards encouragement. Now, plight normally is a negative word, but in the name of my outline to make it all rhyme, uh, it basically means to solemnly bind yourself to a promise, okay? In this case, Elijah was bound to obeying God. Verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now here he is at his lowest point. He traveled 100 miles into the desert. And Yahweh tells him, you're actually going to go deeper into the desert. Isn't that odd? When he's encountering this trial, the Lord gives him another trial. You know, a lot of times when we think that I've had enough, the only prescription is a little R&R. Lord, I'm discouraged. And we expect the Lord to say, not anymore. You're going to Hawaii. <laughs> We've arranged for you to get a little R&R. &R. You're going to get a little beach vacation. Go to a luau. You're going to come back on fire for the Lord. Wow, thanks, Lord. Right? We, we, we think that the only answer to our trial is immediate relief and something really nice. But in this case, Elijah is going through a trial, and what's he greeted with? You're going to go deeper into the desert and fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Great. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you're ministering to me in this way. But the Lord knows that there needs to be a deeper level of understanding, that his heart's not quite ready to hear what he needs to hear. Now, when the Lord leads you into a deeper trial, it's always mitigated by this promise in Isaiah 42.3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He'll let you be bruised, but he won't break you. He'll let you smolder a little bit, but he won't extinguish you. Secondly, despite his discouragement and hardship, Elijah obeyed God's will. Right? He didn't resist. When the Lord tells him to go deeper into the desert, he says, yes, Lord. Now, when I was in college, there was a little bit of a, a, a debate about the importance of duty versus desire. You guys ever heard that little parallelism, antithetical parallelism? Do you go by duty or do you go by desire? And, and the idea is if you don't have the desire to do something for the Lord and you do it anyway, you're just training yourself to be a Pharisee. Now, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, right? That's the best. But there are times when you don't have the desire where duty's all you got. You sign up for a work day at Redemption Hill and it's 8 o'clock in the morning and you just don't feel like going. So what do you do? 
or you know that you need to read the Bible, but you just don't have the desire. Now, what's going what's gonna to solve that for you? You know what? I'm going to doom scroll on Facebook and Instagram. If I do this for an hour, the, the desire to read the Bible is going to come, right? Has that ever worked? I'm going to binge watch football games today, and then I'm going to be on fire for the Lord. I'm going to do that. When you don't want to read the Bible, what do you do? You read the Bible. When you don't want to go to church, what do you do? You go to church. And, and praise God, you guys are here, right? There is something noble about putting aside your feelings, your emotions, your discouragement, and saying, you know what? I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to do exactly what the Lord wants me to do. That's what puts you into position to really learn. And this will be a lesson for Elijah as he put himself in position because of his obedience to allow God to make things right. So he shows up at Mount Horeb. He lodges in a cave. And in verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And his response is pretty telling. Right? The Lord just asks a question. And what's really interesting is when the Lord asks a question, you, you just give an honest answer. I mean, he's omniscient. He knows what's going on in your heart. He says in verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He is still burning with passion. Lord, they have disgraced you. They have rejected you. I have confronted them in zeal. And now I'm the only one left. I'm the only one doing the work. I'm here in the desert while Ahab and Jezebel are in palaces in Israel, fat and happy. Nothing bad's happening to them. Now, God doesn't defend himself or, or answer the question. He says, go and stand on the mount before the Lord. Go on, go stand on the mount. This is where Moses received the covenant. And behold, the Lord passed by. Now, can you imagine you're standing on this mountain and the Lord is going to make an appearance? Last time that happened on this mountain, there was this swirling anvil cloud that was dark and black, pulsing with light. And you knew that in the middle of this cloud, the glory of the Lord resided. And if anybody saw the glory of the Lord, what would happen to them? They would die. The cloud was a shield to protect him. So he's standing out there at his post, waiting for this grand visage of the Lord. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Right, there are spectacular signs. You know, Elijah was used to spectacular miracles, wasn't he? He lived in the realm of spectacular miracles, resurrections, soggy sacrifices being incinerated, food being multiplied. And the God was not in any of those things, was he? I know when I was raising money for, for Hungary, I was hoping for some sort of spectacular sign. 
I wanted that $10,000 check because that would be a great testimony, wouldn't it? I stand in a church like this, tell the story and how the night before I was going to get on my plane, an old lady passed by, knocked on my door and said, the Lord led me to give you this check and it was for $10,000. Hallelujah, God be praised, right? That's the testimony I wanted. But then I'd get a $25 check. Yeah, ultimately, right, the Lord was in the still small voice. He wasn't in the spectacular. He was in the, the subtle, the still small voice. He was in the wind. He wasn't in the wind, he wasn't in the fire. He was in the whisper. So a lot of times we don't hear from God because we're looking for the big signs, not the little ones, not the little blessings, not the small kindnesses, not the, the, the daily quiet times. He's working in subtle ways. So in verse 13, the Lord asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Right? He, he answers the question. And then the Lord does a kindness for him. He peels back the curtain so that Elijah can see the wheels of providence turning. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when he arrived, ye shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the king of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he tells Elijah to go to Damascus to anoint Haziel. Yahweh reminds him that he is sovereign over international affairs. In telling Elijah to anoint Jehu, he's telling Elijah that I am sovereign over national affairs. In telling Elijah to anoint Elisha, he's making it very clear, I am supernatural over spiritual affairs. And just so you know, there is a seed remnant, 7,000 people who have been preserved, who will worship and honor the Lord. He gives detailed plans of his providential plan to make things right. And the whole time, Elijah felt self-pity, felt like he was the only one. No one was standing by him. He had 7,000 brothers and sisters who did not bow the knee to Baal. In all of this, God had a plan the whole time to work all things out for good. He was doing something great the entire time.
Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples, sent to an unjust, unfair kangaroo court, betrayed by justice, betrayed by his people, and he was being crucified, but the Lord was doing something great, wasn't he? Stephen preached a powerful message calling on the people of Israel to repent, and yet they pulled him out, stoned him to death, while Saul watched on, and the Lord was doing something great. Your heart has just been broken by someone who you thought you'd spend the rest of your life with. But the Lord is doing something great. The loved one that you could not bear the the thought of losing has just departed. And the Lord is doing something great. The doctor sheepishly tells you news he knows you don't want to hear. But the Lord is doing something great. Now, you may want the Lord to explain exactly why he's doing what he is doing. But if the Lord decides not to tell you that, we still believe that he is doing something great. He is still in the whisper, right? He is still moving in subtle and sovereign ways, reminding you the whole time that he still cares for you, he still loves you, and even though you may not see it now, he is preparing you for something great. Now, going back to my fundraising episode in in Hungary, I I never got that $10,000 check. I got a couple $1,000 checks, but just over a slow period of time, $25 here, $100 there, $50 there. The Lord managed to provide the funds I needed. The whole time, he deepened my relationship with my parents, and he prepared me for an unexpected mission in Hungary. Now, when I went in 1996, that's when the Iron Curtain fell. And I think I had this missionary fantasy that I'd step off the plane, say, who wants to learn about this book? And Hungarians would come around me and say, we do, tell us, dear American, who is this God you worship? And there would be such a demand for my services that I have to say, listen, we're all worshiping the Lord here, right? Just checking. But what I found was in Hungary, um, it was full of apathetic Hungarians. I had to knock on door after door after door to find somebody who would be willing to talk to me. It was a very slow-moving ministry, and I looked back at how the Lord was training me through my support raising with the, in the areas of perseverance and grit, which was really needed to sustain my ministry. And Pastor J.D., I mean, you can echo that, right? It's nice when ministry is spectacular, But if you go from spectacular high to spectacular high, you become a spiritual high junkie. Those who last in ministry see the subtle, sovereign work of God and labor continuously, not demanding to see these big events and these big changes. See, ultimately, the Lord ministered to me in my discouragement. And I look back now and I see his wisdom. And brother and sister, you may not see the wisdom now. 
It'd be nice if you could see it in this life, but you will see it in the future. But you have to trust that the God who loved you enough to send his own son to die for you will freely give you all things. Don't allow this discouragement to cause you to doubt God. In the midst of discouragement, sometimes the lesson is you can find no other comfort in this world but comfort in God alone. God is using this not because he hates you or you've done something wrong, but because he wants to teach you to become more like Christ. And in the end, he's going to make it right. In the meantime, trust that the Lord is still working in your life through subtle, sovereign ways. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you just thankful for the life of Elijah and the hope that we have in you that you will make all things right. And Father, I, I sense that there are people in this church who really needed to hear this message because they are dealing with difficult circumstances and that they are discouraged. Father, I pray that they will come before you and just lay their discouragements before you in honest, open conversations. That they will get a special sense that even this message is a subtle, sovereign way that you are ministering to them. May they sense that you care for them, that you love them. May they have hope and faith in you, your character, and your power that you will make things right in the end. And Lord, I pray that you'll give them hope and help them to rejoice on credit. I thank you for this church. I pray for the leadership. I pray for Pastor J.D. that you'll continue to just shepherd these souls and just encourage the faint-hearted. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.